Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Janet Smith from children's bookshop Blast Off Books. Now, Cathy Cassidy is a gem of a writer, and I'm so pleased that Puffin Children's Books have started to publish her. So far, she's published two books, Dizzy last summer and earlier this year, Indigo Blue, and already she's established a large and loyal fan base amongst her readers. And I think it's because there's playground buzz where Cathy's books are concerned. Young readers are speaking to each other and getting excited and saying, you must read this book by this new writer. And I think part of the success is that there's very few writers out there doing what Cathy does, and that's writing about real life situations, sometimes quite difficult situations that she puts her young characters into. It's what teachers out there love to call coming of age books. For example, in Dizzy, her first book, young Dizzy is left when she's a toddler by her mother, and then her mother suddenly reappears on her 12th birthday and whisks Dizzy off round the, the country visiting different music festivals. Now, Dizzy spent her lifetime imagining what her mother's going to be like and daydreaming about her, and of course the reality isn't quite what she'd hoped. But Dizzy learns from that, and she meets some great people on the way. And in Indigo Blue, Indy is taken from her family home by her mother and has to live in a damp basement flat. She's really quite upset about that. But slowly, over the course of the book, Indigo, and of course us as the reader, find out exactly why her mum has to do that. And Cathy's new book, Driftwood, is due out at the beginning of September. We're going to get a sneak preview today about that. Now, Cathy does tackle difficult situations, but she does it with warmth and, very importantly, with a great deal of humour. And she's created for us lovely, sympathetic, strong and believable characters. So here this morning to tell us more about her books, her characters, and to give us, as I was saying, a sneak preview of Driftwood, the new book, please join me in welcoming Cathy Cassidy. Right, I'll speak louder. Can you hear me now? Quiet rain. Thank you very much, Janet. That was lovely. And thank you all so much for coming on such a yucky day to come and listen. It's brilliant. Um, I have a feeling, I think, I think there are a few people dotted about the audience, that um, kids that maybe have emailed at the website um, before or maybe written letters and maybe even one or two people that I've met already, which is wonderful. It's lovely to have that kind of support. So special thank you to all of you for coming. Um, I'm going to sit down because it feels too scary and formal to stand up and be all school teacherish. So I'm going to sit down and just tell you a little bit about how I got started in writing and a little bit about each of the three books. And as we said, I will be letting you into a little of um, the story of Driftwood, the new book which is due out on the 1st of September. And I don't know if anybody's had a chance to sneak into the children's bookshop yet, but copies of Driftwood are on sale and can, you can buy one and get it signed today and you will be the first people anywhere in the country to be able to get your hands on Driftwood. So that should be cool. Okay. Right. Anybody here that loves writing? Who loves writing? No, you all love reading, but we've, yeah. Lots of people who are secret, secret writers maybe have dreams of being a writer yourselves one day. That was where I started out when I was about your age. Really, really, I loved daydreaming and I loved writing down the things, the stories that I made up in my head. Um, and I used to love doing that at school. And then... Um, by the time I got to be a teenager, um, I, had, I had a plan that I would actually try and get my stories into print. I thought that would be the coolest thing in the world. At that stage, I read a magazine called Jackie Magazine, which I don't think any of the kids here will know, but some, some of the older people in the audience will remember it only too well. Jackie Magazine was um, the very first British teen magazine in Britain. And it ran right from the early 60s um, right up until, I think, the end of the 80s when it finally, I think it reached the grand old age of 30 and folded finally. But I was reading Jackie magazine in the 70s, okay? And it didn't really have much competition. It came out every week. It was a really, it was a good big read with loads of stuff in it. It always had two short stories, a serial, 
at least one serial, picture stories and everything. It had lots of stuff to do and read in it. And one day, I remember coming into school um, with my copy of Jackie, and lots of, lots of the other girls at school were going, look, look, have you seen? There was a special story that everybody was talking about that day. Um, and I remember we had, we had hockey practice, we had games, and we, it was a day like this. We had to run up and down a field in the mud, getting battered with hockey sticks, and, and we all came crawling back into, into school to get changed. Nobody wanted to go off to break. Everybody sat down in the changing rooms once we'd, got, once we'd got out of our games kit, reading, sharing copies of Jackie magazine just between two or three. We were all sat there um, sharing and reading this story that everybody had been talking about. And by the end of break time, when the bell went for us to go off to our next lesson, everybody was sitting there sniffing and dabbing at their eyes with tissues because it was a really sad story about a boy on a motorbike who came to a very sticky, sad end. And we all wandered off to the next lesson then with pink eyes and the teachers wondered what had happened to us, what on earth had they done to us in our hockey lesson. So, and that made a big impression on me because I remember thinking, wow, that one story had the same effect on everybody, on about as many people as we've got here, here today, really. All those girls who'd read the story really felt the same thing and really, really sort of were touched and impressed by that story. So that was fantastic. And I went home and thought, I would love to do something like that, something that could make everybody feel, feel something, change the way that you feel. And it became my ambition then to actually get a story printed in Jackie magazine. So from the age of maybe 12 or 13 onwards, that was what I tried to do. My dad, he had a, a business... Um, repairing cars and he had a little manual typewriter in the corner of the living room for writing the invoices on because this was long before the days of computers so I snaffled the, the typewriter and took it up the stairs into my bedroom and I taught myself to type very slowly one finger at a time built up to two and I still I never really got any further than the two fingers but I can do it quite quickly now with, with the two fingers so um, after a little while, I had my story all typed out, a few bits of tipex and crossings out here and there. But and I remember doing a picture for it too, because I thought that all the pictures in the magazine had, had an illustration. I thought you had to supply your own picture. So put it in an envelope, and I asked my dad who you would send it to, and he said the fiction editor. The fiction editor is the person who, who buys the stories on a magazine. So off it went, addressed to the fiction editor on Jackie magazine. And then for the next... Five or six weeks, I walked around with fingers and toes all crossed, really, really hoping that maybe something magical would happen and that story would be accepted and would appear. One day, I might open the magazine and there it would be, my story in print. And five or six weeks later, a letter came back through the letterbox from Jackie magazine, but it didn't say that my story was going to be published. It said, Dear Kathy, we're very sorry that your story has not been suitable for Jackie magazine. Do try again. So instead of being really, really sad and, and upset about it, I, th I thought, oh, they said try again. So I, I went straight back upstairs <laughs> and started hammering out another story. And um, I did that pretty much all the way through my teens. Stories went off. Six or seven weeks later, back they came. Always with quite a nice letter, but always the letter said no. And that carried on. You might kind of say, well, you know, she was a bit silly because she didn't get the hint. She should have, she should have you know, just learned from her experience and not done it. But um, bit by bit, I did learn quite a lot from all that writing stories and sending them away. I never got a story published in Jackie magazine, but when I was 16, I did manage to get a story printed in a different magazine, and that was just the best thing in the world. It seemed it was, you know, real dream come true. It was fab. Um, so really the message there is for any of you who've got a dream, whether it's something um, to do with being a writer or it might be something completely different. It could be, you know, you might want to be a pop star, a musician, sports star, anything at all. Any, any kind of career dream that you have, hang on to it because sometimes, sometimes as you get older you, you, you forget the things that you've wanted to do. You forget those lovely things that you've, you've dreamed about. My message really would be to you, aim high, okay, but work hard to try and make that dream happen and keep at it, because it took me quite a long time to make all my dreams actually happen. But 
well worth keeping at it and just doing it. So follow your dreams. Now, um, I went to art college. Some of you might know that if you've had a look at my website. Um, and I, did, I studied illustration at college, which was a nice, fun thing to do. After I left college, I, I settled down, tried to write my first book, but never actually got anything written on it. Um, and I decided I needed a job, really, to try and, try and um, make a bit of money. Couldn't find a job that I really wanted to do. I was in Liverpool, and the kind of jobs available weren't the sort of things that appealed to me. So I decided to write some letters and send them off to places that I thought I would like to work. And one of the places I wrote off to was Jackie Magazine. Um, and this time I had a letter back and it said, Dear Cathy, please come for an interview. And after a couple of interviews, I landed myself a job on that magazine, the one that I'd read all the way through my teens. So you imagine how cool it would be if you actually landed a job on your favourite magazine and what that would be like. So when I, when I first started off at Jackie, I had to do things like make the coffee and um, do all the photocopying and all, all the junior jobs. But I was really lucky because my desk sat next to the desk of the fiction editor. The fiction editor, remember, is the one who buys all the short stories for the magazine. And the fiction editor was a really nice guy um, who was very busy, had a lot of things to do apart from, apart from buying the stories. And sometimes stories would come in and pile up on his desk higher and higher and higher. And he would be busy drinking coffee, eating chocolate, and doing lots of other important magazine-type things. Um, and sometimes that pile would get so high it would wobble a little bit and stories would just drop off onto my desk. And it's like, oh, okay. And the fiction editor would say, could you just read those stories for me and tell me what you think? And you've probably done things like this. Um, you know, if you ever have to do a book review or, or a report or something at school about something that you've read, it's just really a, a bit like that. And you'd read these stories and say, yeah, this one's brilliant, we've got to buy it, or this one's good, but not quite right, but maybe we should send them a nice letter and say, try again, or, or this one's really not good, but let's still not be horrible about it, and things like that, you know. So after I'd done that for a few weeks, the fiction editor said, okay, you do that quite well. You can be the fiction editor. And he moved on and became the assistant editor of the magazine, and I suddenly inherited the best job in the world just because I sat next to his desk, and that was great. So I was there for a couple of years and learned loads from reading the stories that came in. I learned lots about what, what kids of your age really want to read um, and how a short story works. So another, another good tip for all of you who are keen on writing, one of the best and easiest ways to learn that trade is to read a lot, okay? So if you read, you're learning all the time about other people's style and how people put together a story and how they work a plot. Um, all of those things you can, you can absorb really painlessly just by reading lots. So that is, that is the nicest way um, to actually learn. So anyway, I did that and had quite a lot of fun. This, was, this would be the mid-80s by this point. Um, and I did, I did lots of other things on the magazine too. I've got to interview some dodgy pop stars and I did some fashion shoots and beauty shoots and things like that. Got sent to London for some exciting trips. You would maybe imagine that Jackie magazine um, was actually based in London. Does anybody, is that what you'd imagine? Actually is just based up the road from you in Dundee. Okay, it's DC Thompson's who also published things like the Beano. And although Jackie Magazine no longer exists, DC Thompson's are still happy and thriving in Dundee and still take, still take their journalists fresh from school at 17 or 18 if they can get them. So any of you who have a secret ambition to be a magazine journalist, that's, that's, you know, there are a lot of successful writers and journalists who started off at DC Thompson. And if, if you're all in this area, that's something maybe you could keep in, your, in, in mind. So... I worked on Jackie Mag for a couple of years anyway, and after that I decided I'd quite like to go back to use my art again, because remember I'd done an art degree. So I, I came down to the Midlands, trained to be an art teacher for a year, and began teaching art in a secondary school in Coventry. Um, and I loved that, and at the same time was selling lots of short stories and features and illustrations to Jackie and to all the other teen magazines that sprouted up by that point. So I got really busy at this point and began actually selling stories and, and freelancing. So that was good. And then after a while, missed Scotland, really missed living in Dundee because we all know that Scotland is the best place in the world. And we decided, um, my husband and I, that we would come and live 
back in Scotland and we found a beautiful little corner of Scotland called Dumfries and Galloway and um, that's where we still live now, really quiet little cottage in the middle of nowhere, just the odd sheep and cow drifting past the fence and it was always very quiet until my children hit the age of 11, 12, 13, which they're now 11 and 13 and loud, roaring music will, will now come down the corridor at me when, when, I come, you know, when I come home. It's like Good Charlotte or Green Day or something scary like that. So it's not peaceful and quiet anymore, but it's still beautiful and wonderful. And teaching art maybe two days a week. Um, I think, I don't know if you have this in, in the Edinburgh area. I'm, I'm an art specialist in primary schools now because that fits in really nicely with writing. Um, and up until this summer, I've been going into six little primary schools um, and working as the art teacher. And after this summer, it will just be three because the writing's kind of, you know, spreading and taking over a little bit. So I was doing lots and lots of things. Um, and I did tell you that Jackie magazine folded after a while. And, and um, I'll tell you what happened when it did. I actually had a phone call from DC Thompson's and they said, OK, um, we're going to stop publishing Jackie magazine because it's kind of got a little bit old and past its sell-by date and we, we want to publish something new. And they launched a magazine called Shout. Has anybody, anybody read Shout or come across Shout? Good, few Shout readers here. Well, Thompson's rang me and said, you've worked for us, you worked on the Jackie for a few years and you sell lots of stories and features to us and you know lots and lots about magazines. Would you like to be the agony ant for our new magazine? And I said, OK. I thought, that'd be a good job. It might last a year or two. And I've been doing it for about 12 years now. So that's really been fun. It's been great. And I don't know quite how it happened, how, how I came to be an agony aunt exactly. But some of you maybe will have the same kind of character traits that, that I think would make you a good agony aunt. Um, when I thought about why they'd asked me to be the agony aunt, I think it's because I'm the kind of person that people, you know, you'll be sitting, chatting to somebody and suddenly, suddenly you'll be, you'll be um, talking about lots of deep, deep and worrying things and, or, or sharing secrets and, and people will, will tell you their troubles. Does that ever happen to you? Do you have people come up and, and tell you all their troubles? Anybody, anybody have that? A few nods? Yeah? If that's you, then you are, it means you're a good listener. Okay, it means you're a caring friend. You're somebody who, who would like to try and fix everything up and put things right for people and make the world a better place, maybe. It means, really, that your life's unofficial agony aunts and uncles, maybe, if there are a few, few boys that put hands up, too. So you're doing the same job as me, but maybe, maybe not for a magazine. But it, it, you're the real ones who actually matter because you need people like that all the way through life, I think. Um, and it's, it's one of the things that helps hold friendships together. So Shout Magazine, um, also just going to mention, they're the only, the only teen magazine that will answer every problem that, that people send in. So if you ever do have a problem, it's not a bad magazine to send your worries to. You will get an answer no matter what. The other ones just, just reply to the ones that actually get printed in, in the magazine. Um, and also just another slight addition to that. If you have a problem, please send your problem to me at Shout and don't email it to the website because that's really just about the books. So the two things kind of try to keep them separate. So with the teaching and the agony anting, that's quite busy, kept me quite busy really. But all the time, really, really wanted to get on and write the books. Been in my mind for so long and I've started writing, writing books many, many times over the last 10 or 15 years. And always I would get, dive straight in, great idea. This probably happened to you as well. You just start off and then run along. At the end of chapter three, something happens and you just kind of come to a grinding halt. And it's like, oh, what happens next? Has that ever happened to you? Anybody run out of steam, sort of just, just halfway into a story or even less than halfway? That happened to me all the time. I think it was because I was so used to writing short stories that once it became long, it got really scary. So I have a drawer at home, and it's full of stories that never got past three chapters, which is quite a scary thought. And I think, you know, sometimes people say, why don't you get them out and finish them off? But I think you never do. Some of you might find that as well. If you, if you actually, if you stop writing a story halfway through, you hardly ever go back and finish it off, and then it will go stale and kind of crusty, and you just don't want to go there. So 
something changed. And I had an idea for a story, it was dizzy, that I really, really wanted to write. And um, I had a friend who, who um, was saying, well, why stop at chapter three? What are you frightened of? You know, get on with it, do it, if you want to be a writer. And I was like, well, I do want to be a writer, definitely gonna do it one day when I get round to it, but it's a bit scary. And she said, just do it. Make it the most important thing in your day and do it no matter what, whether you haven't hoovered, you know, it doesn't matter whether you've washed up, any of that. Otherwise, you'll be sat there when you're 80 and, you know, in that chair just still telling me, I'm going to do it one day, honestly, sitting there with your knitting. And I thought, right, I'll show her. And this time with Dizzy, when I got to the end of chapter three, I did have a wobble and I wanted very badly to put the whole thing in a drawer, but I carried on. And something really magical happened at the end of chapter three. Forced myself to carry on, and suddenly the story seemed to come alive, and the characters began to do things that I hadn't expected at all. And it all became really exciting and fun to write. And that made me think, wow, if you just push yourself over the difficult bit, that's when it really gets good. So before I knew it, writing just about a 1,000 words a day, I had finished, I'd finished my book. Dizzy. And what did I do after that? Okay, I put it in the drawer. That's where it went. And the same friend came round and said, have you sent your book to lots of publishers? Has anybody said they like it? And I said, oh, it's in the drawer. Which was a bit, so she kind of shouted at me then. But anyway, that was fine. Um, and I took the story out. And she said, look, if it's scary to send it to publishers, send it to agents instead. Agents are these people who know loads and loads about business, so they'll know what to do with it. So I looked in a book called The Writer's Handbook and found some agents and sent it off to some. And one phoned and said, I really like your book and I think I can sell it. And about six weeks later, the agent had six different children's publishers all wanting to buy it. And a year later, which was last June, Dizzy was published and that, that was, was my dream totally coming true, and it did take me quite a long time. I always thought when I was your age that I would be published by the time I was sort of 17 or something and, you know, young and successful, but it kind of took a bit longer. So that, that message about following your dream, that goes for everybody. It goes for the mums and dads in the audience as well. It's, there is no, there's no sort of date when it expires. That dream is still there. Fish it out and make it happen. I'm going to read you a teeny bit from the very start of Dizzy. Just if, if there's anybody here that hasn't read Dizzy, this will just give you a little bit of a flavor. It's just the very, very first bit, just a short bit. And Dizzy, it's about a girl, as Janet said, a girl called Dizzy, who's not seen her mum since she was four, okay? Dizzy's mum and dad are new age travelers, kind of hippy-dippy people. And I don't know if any, any of you have dodgy, slightly hippy parents here in the audience. Um, I know there are two children at the back that do have very strange parents, okay, because they're my children, okay, but still. So I know that a lot of you have things to put up with, difficult things to put up with. So I'm going to read you a little bit from the very start of Dizzy, just to give you a flavour of it, and then I'm going to talk a bit more about the other books. I never sleep the night before my birthday. It's not the usual kind of excitement. I don't get all wound up about whether I'll get a new CD or a pair of rollerblades or a guitar. It's a guitar anyway, Dad told me. I'm not stressed out about a party or a sleepover or a trip to the ice rink either. We have this tradition, Dad and me. We stay at home with a takeaway and a video. If it's his birthday, Dad picks Indian food along with something hippy-dippy or old action to watch like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. When I was little, I used to go for Disney, then soppy stuff like The Secret Garden or Fairy Tale. This year, we've got Sky TV, and I get to have complete charge of the remote control all evening. I'll probably just skip between MTV and Kerrang, munching pizza as I flick. Birthdays are pretty cool, I know. It's just that no matter how hard I try, I can't relax, I can't not care, and I'm always a little bit scared the night before. Every year, I'm up at dawn watching for the postman because there's one very special card, a parcel even sometimes, I just have to get. It's the only day of the year I hear from her. So that's 
That's Dizzy on the night before her 12th birthday. And on her 12th birthday, nothing comes through the post. No card, no letter, no parcel. But later that day, somebody very special turns up on Dizzy's doorstep and whisks her away for a whole summer of adventure that really changes her life. So that's a bit about Dizzy. And then, in February this year, my second book, Indigo Blue, was published, okay? And Indigo Blue is, is a school story rather than, rather than a kind of summer adventure like Dizzy. Um, and with Indigo, it's a story about a little girl who loves daydreaming. So there's a little bit of me in there somewhere. Um, and I'm going to read you a bit from the start of chapter four because it's the bit where the plot for Indigo Blue actually came from. When I was thinking about writing this story, the very first thing that, I, that, that came to me wasn't even a plot or an idea or anything. It was the name. It was that name, Indigo Blue. And Indigo Blue is one of the colours of the rainbow. Okay. Um, and I thought, Indigo, that would be a really good name. I don't know if you've noticed, but people who have read the books will have a little clue that I really like unusual names, okay? And that was why it was great to write about the, the hippie traveller community because they like really strange names, so that was good. And with Indigo Blue, I thought, right, Indigo, that would be a really good girl's name and because it's Indigo Blue, she could be a bit sad. She could be a little bit sad. But I didn't, I had the character, had the, the idea of the name and, and the idea of some, something sad happening in the book, but I didn't really have, have a clue what the plot might be. So... I'm going to read you a bit, and it, I'll tell you kind of how it links in to, to working the plot out. Indy um, is telling the story, and she's, she's an 11-year-old girl. She really likes her life. Um, she lives with her mum, um, her mum's boyfriend, Max, and her little sister, Misty. Um, she, has, she loves school, and she's got a best friend called Joe at school. Um, and everything seems fine. The only bit about her life she doesn't really like are the constant rows between Max and her mum. And after one really bad row, Indy's mum tells her not to come home after school, that she's got to wait at school until her mum turns up. Okay, so she goes into school that day and just feels a little bit unsettled and anxious that things are not working out, something a bit dodgy is going on, and maybe they're not going to go home. Okay, so this is from the start of chapter four. The last bell goes on possibly my worst ever day at school since the time in year two I was sick all over myself at the dinner table and had to lie down in the office wearing a nylon stripy t-shirt and an enormous pair of gray flannel boy shorts from around the time of Noah's Ark. No, seriously, this is worse. On the day I need her to be fun and easy and no questions asked, Joe, paranoid and downright nosy, and now she thinks I'm telling her lies and she's walking home with Aisha Patel. I sit on the wall and watch the kids scatter, mums and snotty baby brothers and sisters in tow. The playground is quiet now except for some year three lads from down the road kicking a ball around in the corner. I look at my watch. Mum's only a bit late so I don't have to worry or anything. She's probably been dead busy. She'll be here pretty soon and it'll all get sorted. She'll explain about this morning and everything will be okay. Maybe I got it wrong, the moving stuff. Maybe she and Max have made it up and he'll trundle up in his flash blue builder's van and we'll all head off and get big chip supper. Maybe go watch a film the way we used to before Misty was born. We were happy then. Everything okay, Indigo? Everything is far from okay when Miss McDougall is creeping up behind me, looking at me all worried and faintly disapproving. Fine, miss, I say brightly. Are you waiting for someone? My mum, miss. Miss McDougall frowns at her watch. She seems rather late, she says. Would you like me to call home for you? No, miss. Thank you, miss, but she's not at home. She said she might be late. Everything's fine, miss, really. Very well, Indigo, but if there's a problem, look, I'll just give you some money for the phone or for bus fare, just in case. Thanks, miss. I watch her big, tweedy figure trail across the playground and into the staff car parking area. She gives me a wave as she vrooms away. So, there's Indy sitting on the wall outside the school waiting for her mum to turn up. 
And that is a direct lift from something that I actually saw because one day I came out of, um, out of school after teaching art one afternoon. Everybody had gone, the school buses had gone, and every, all the kids had gone except for one little girl, much younger than Indy, who was still sat on the wall. So I kind of was a Miss McDougall figure, and I came up and said, are you okay? What's, you know, what's up? Are you waiting for somebody? And the little girl said, yes, I'm waiting for my mum. And at that minute, car drew up, mum arrived, little girl gets in car, off they drove, and everything was fine. So no problem, except, click, something in my head. As I was going home, I began thinking, what? What would happen if the mum hadn't turned up? What might have happened to make that whole situation? What if the little girl waited and waited and it began to get dark and she got scared? And what? that's where the story kind of came from. So it daydreamed itself into a bit of a plot. By the time I got home, I had the start of the story. Anybody here daydream? Who daydreams here? Okay. Come on, adults are allowed to admit to it too. Okay, that's good, that's great. Okay, well, that is really how I got into writing in the first place. I think, I think it's, it kind of is when the penny dropped that not only can you daydream, but then you write it down and somebody might say good, because when you're daydreaming, they don't say good. The teachers go, stop that, stop gazing out of the window or whatever, you know. But if you, if you, have you been in trouble at school for daydreaming ever? All those daydreamers, I guarantee you have been in trouble at some point or another, yeah? Okay, well that happened to me regularly from a very young age. I mean, even, even something very simple like being sent to the shop to, you know, to buy a tin of beans for my mum. By the time, you know, shop was only one street away and by the time I'd get to the shop, I'd have completely forgotten what, what I was supposed to be getting because I'd have made up some story about something that I'd seen in the street or whatever. So I was, you know, pretty, pretty annoying child, really. But I think, really, don't believe the people who will tell you that daydreaming is a bad thing, because daydreaming is a really good thing. Daydreaming is, is just as important as any school lesson, okay? Now, I'm allowed to say this because I'm a teacher too, remember, so it's, it's okay. Um, Maybe good not to do it in your maths lesson or your science lesson, which is what I used to do at school, and that's where I got into trouble. But if you do get caught out daydreaming in a, in a lesson at school, what you have to say is, look, it's okay, miss, or it's okay, sir. I'm planning my next book, okay? And it might just work, and it might not. I never thought of that in time, you know, when I was at school, so I can't guarantee, but you could try it. You could give it a go. Because daydreaming is really the best exercise that your imagination can have, because you're, just, you're, you're actually plotting a story in your head, even if it's just to kill the boredom of, of having to suffer through a lesson that you don't enjoy. But who knows? You could give it a go. And daydreaming, that was where the plot for Indigo came from, and that was also why I decided to make her a bit of a daydreamer, because when Indy's life went a little bit out of shape and went a bit wrong, daydreams were a way of escaping from that. And, and that's, that's also, um, I think there's a little bit of that in most writers too, because you kind of, you know, you're, you're able to create a different world. And I had a very happy childhood. It wasn't, it wasn't really like Indigo, but when I was a teenager, I was very shy and very quiet and um, probably read too much Jackie magazine and, and read the stories where all, all the teenagers were out having a wild time the whole time. And I remember thinking, well, it's not like that. That's not fair. Why is my life not like that? So it was really when I was a teenager, I began to write seriously, and the daydreams got written down. And you know, so it wasn't just the stories that got sent away to the magazine, but it was also um, longer stories began to be written that, that um, were pure escapism. So if my summer looked like being long and boring, I would write myself a story where, where the character in the story had a much more exciting and, and you know, interesting time ahead of her. So that is, is, you know, a little bit of escapism in, in every daydreamer. So that was Indigo Blue. Um, now then. After Indigo Blue, Driftwood, the new book, okay? And I'm going to read you a little bit from, from Driftwood and talk a little bit about that. But also hopefully have some room for you to ask some questions. So if you want to just get thinking, if there's anything you would like to know as well, and you can ask about anything at all. But Driftwood, tell you a little bit about it. Um, 
It's a story based in Scotland, and it's based in Dumfries and Galloway, really, near where I live. Um, and it was, really, it was really good fun to actually base the story somewhere so close to home. So it's about two girls and two boys in a Scottish high school by the sea. And it's an imaginary high school, but in my mind, it's somewhere on, on the coast of Dumfries and Galloway. And there are bits of driftwood which, which kind of link into when I was, when I was an art teacher in um, a secondary school in Coventry. Because um, as an art teacher in this story, it's not me, but it's kind of, th there are little bits and pieces of my experience in there. So as well as the daydreaming, you find that you, you know, if you're writing, it's sometimes nice. You can pull little tiny bits and details from real life into your stories. And that's certainly happened with Driftwood. So um, if I read you, I'll read you the first chapter, and maybe, maybe you'll notice the, the slightly chaotic art teacher making an appearance in that first chapter. Um, there are also a couple of, a couple of characters based on, based on little details of my children as well. So I'll maybe tell you, tell you that and, and embarrass them, make them go pink. So there's a character called Joey who really is, Joey's a girl, and Joey does not like school uniform. Joey's a bit of a secret goth and really can't stand wearing school uniform. And she's a clever girl and a very confident girl, and she loves to challenge the teachers, and the head teacher especially, at the school where she goes. Now, the character of Joey was, it's not based on my daughter, but it's almost a gift to my daughter, because my, my little girl would go to school over the last couple of years maybe wearing something that isn't quite in the school uniform, like black nail varnish or stripy socks or, or a funny haircut or something. And the teacher would say, don't come back with that tomorrow. Don't come back with that tomorrow. So, if, you know, and she'd come home and go, yeah, to think up something new. But so she's not my daughter, but Joey is kind of, it, it, I thought it would make her smile because this character kind of outwits the teachers and gets her own way. And then there is also a character called Kit, who is um, a 13-year-old boy, okay? And he's based on the way that boys grow up and kind of get a little bit huffy and snippy sometimes with their sisters. Has anybody here got an older brother? Who's got an older brother? Anybody noticed that, the way they kind of get a little bit, you know, a bit less, they're not so interested in playing, you know, Lego and board games and stuff. They suddenly get very cool and very kind of not, not really wanting to play with their sisters anymore. Now, I'm going to read you the whole of the first chapter of Driftwood, okay? And it's being, the story's told by a character called Hannah, okay? So, my best friend, Joey Donovan, is weird. She is clever, she is kind, she is seriously cool, but still, she's weird in a take-it-or-leave-it kind of way. She always has been, ever since she marched into my classroom seven years ago, wearing pink wellies, reindeer antlers, and a don't-mess-with-me look in her big blue eyes. She pitched up in Kirklagen like a small tornado, and she's been like that ever since. It's Monday morning, and Joey stomps down the aisle of the school bus, a vision in freckles and black lipstick. She's wearing a grey school skirt with the hem chopped off, so it's all frayed and ratty, and long, stripy socks that reach up over her skinny knees. One sock is black and white, and the other black and red. On her feet are clumpy black biker boots with shiny silver buckles, and her jacket is a huge, drooping school blazer, like something your great-granddad might have worn in 1947. Where the school badge once was, she has stitched on a good Charlotte patch, slightly squint. She's on a one-woman mission to overthrow school uniform or redesign it as her own version of punk, goth, scarecrow chic. She is 12 years old. Like the socks, my brother Kit calls down from the back seat of the bus. A few kids snigger and Joey sticks her tongue out at him, but hey, my brother probably does like the socks. He is 13 years old and lately I have seen a moonstruck fuzzy expression creep over his face whenever Joey is around. I haven't mentioned this to Joey yet. I don't want to scare her. She slides into the seat beside me. Her hair, ash blonde with random stripes of pink and green, 
is bundled into two stubby plaits that stick out alarmingly above her collar. Major news, she says, eyes sparkling with excitement. I mean, seriously, Major Hannah, you will never guess what happened yesterday. Yesterday, Joey was meant to come round to my place to hang out, use my PC for her English homework and get her usual fix of The Simpsons. Jed and Eva don't have a computer or a telly in their house and Joey gets withdrawal symptoms, sometimes. At the last minute though, she rang to cancel. I didn't mind too much, but Kit was crushed, all dressed up in his best jeans and hoodie, hair gelled into hedgehog spikes and trailing a cloud of toxic aftershave. He's got it bad. So, I say now, tugging at Joey's plait, what was it all about? Tell. She settles into her seat, breaking a stick of gum in half so we can share. Guess what? Jed and Eva are only going to foster a new kid after all this time. Joey and her little brother Mikey started out being fostered, but their family, Jed and Eva, got the legal bits sorted out and adopted them for keeps a few years back. If you saw the Donovan family all together, you'd never guess they weren't related. They are a perfect fit. The whole bunch of them are seriously flaky. No way, I grin. A new kid. Is that good or bad? Oh, good. Definitely, Joey laughs. Paul, his name is. Paul Slater. The social worker said he's from a troubled background, whatever that is, but they reckon he'll settle in great with Jed and Eva. They brought him down from Glasgow yesterday. Cool or what? Cool. How old is he? Will he be a friend for Mikey? Nah, Joey said. Paul's older than us, 13. He'll be in S2. Maybe Kit can look out for him. My brother Kit is a pain in the bum, but he's funny and streetwise and popular with the other kids. And in spite of the teasing, he'd do anything for Joey. Why don't you ask him, I suggest. I think he'd do it. I will. Paul's starting school today, but Eva drove him in early to get the paperwork done and to talk to Mr. McKenzie and the guidance teachers and everyone. The bus lurches to a halt and a sea of rackety teenagers rolls down the aisle. Joey and I take our time. It's January. It's only just light out there and definitely sub-zero, so what's the hurry? When Joey stands up, my brother Kit just happens to be in the aisle behind her. Fancy seeing you girls, he says carelessly, as if he hasn't spent a whole week planning this exact moment. After you, Josephine. Why, thank you, Christopher, Joey says sweetly. Kit moves along smoothly behind her, bashing me in the arm with his rucksack, so I know his sudden attack of good manners doesn't extend to me. Joey is telling Kit all about the new foster kid, and by the time we spill out shivering onto the frosty pavements, She's got him to promise he'll keep an eye on Paul Slater. Just until he finds his feet, you know, Joey is saying. He's quite shy, I think, but he is from Glasgow. He must have a bit of street sense somewhere. Leave it to me, Kit replies. I'll look after him. Oh, Kit, thanks, Joey says, fluttering her eyelashes and laying it on thick. I knew I could count on you. By the time she turns away from him, my brother is bright pink and grinning like a madman. No change there, then. We link arms and mooch up towards the school gates, giggling. Your brother blushed, Joey tells me, although just about everyone south of Aberdeen must have spotted the beacon that is Kit's face. Do you think he likes me? Just a bit. Whoa, Joey laughs. Don't know if I can handle that. Don't know if I can. Then we spot Mr. Mackenzie, the head, patrolling the school gates. We stop dead in our tracks. Mr. Mackenzie and Joey Donovan do not see eye to eye. His aim in life is to stamp out all signs of rebellion, disorder and individuality. School uniform offences are punishable by death or week-long detentions anyhow. Joey does not stand a chance. We'll sneak in through the staff car park, I decide, dragging Joey along the pavement away from the main gates. Joey looks glum because she enjoys arguing about uniform with Mr. Mackenzie. Since she started at Kirklagen High School last August, he's had to write two new clauses into the school uniform list. The first outlaws black PVC miniskirts. The second declares that dog collars and studded wristbands may not be worn on school premises. Freak, spits out an S3 lad as we dodge past him. Loser, Joey responds automatically. When I look over my shoulder, I can see Kit giving the S3 kid a row for picking on Joey, and I have to smile. 
We sneak through the teacher's car park and skirt round the back of the dinner halls. A heady aroma of boiled cabbage and custard assaults us from the kitchens, even though it's barely ten to nine. What's that noise? Joey demands suddenly, frowning. Can't hear anything. Come on, Joey, we can't be late. Joey is standing still, her face anxious, eyes scanning the kitchen yard with its skip full of cardboard, the piles of plastic crates and the trio of dustbins huddled together near the wall. I heard something, she insists. I didn't, I huff. It's so cold the words seem to gather in the air before me, a small white cloud like dragon's breath. Joey, it's freezing. Can we just go now? She shakes her head, putting a finger to her lips. Exasperated, I shiver inside my duffel coat. What kind of a noise, I ask. In the stillness, I can hear the sounds of kids shouting in the distance and someone scraping a pan inside the kitchen. Behind us, Miss Quinn's clapped out VW Beetle wheezes across the car park and shudders to a halt. The school bell clatters out then and Miss Quinn rushes past us, pink scarf flapping on her way to the art block. Hurry up, girls, she grins. You'll be late, later than me even. She disappears around the corner, but Joey still won't budge. And then I hear it, a thin, mewling cry that's coming from the dustbins. Joey's there in a flash, tipping up the lids, rooting through the rubbish. Scrunched up kitchen roll and long strips of cellophane flutter down onto the concrete. Hannah, she breathes. Look, Hannah, just look what I've found. Together we peer into the third bin. Therein, among the vegetable peelings and the cold baked beans, curled up in a squashed up cardboard box, chucked out in the freezing cold January morning like so much rubbish. Three tiny, shivering, blue eyed kittens. So that's the start of Driftwood and lots of stuff in there so okay now I think I better see if we've got any questions um, and hang on till we've got the, the mic anybody got any nosy questions to ask you can ask about the books you can ask about writing about me about anything you can think of don't ask me any maths questions because I won't be able to do those okay wallet back Do I think I'll ever write about a boy main character? That's a really good question. Um, lots of people have emailed the website asking if I'll ever do a follow-up to Dizzy. And anybody who's read Dizzy will know that there's one character in it that doesn't get a happy ending, okay? There's a character called Mouse, who's a little boy. And I would like to write Mouse's story when he's a little bit older and maybe give him a happy ending. But also, um, there are a couple of other boy characters in my head that maybe will have a story written about them at some time as well. So, good question. I will, yeah. Okay, one here at the front. Thank you. Who's your favourite character in Dizzy and Indigo Blue? Okay, favourite character in Dizzy is Dizzy. This book was the one that was the most fun to write because for me it was a bit of wish fulfilment. I really would have liked to have that kind of summer that Dizzy had. and. Um, Loved all that, all that festival background in it, so it was really good fun to write, so dizzy. And in Indigo Blue, I think my favourite character in Indigo Blue is probably Aisha, the friend, because she starts off, um, and Indy's not too sure about her, but she turns out to be a really good true friend, so that would, that would be... And I think in Driftwood, all of them. I like all the four main characters, even the ones that aren't quite perfect. So another one, let's have that one at the back. What gave you the idea about the kittens? The idea about the kittens, right, that's a really good question because that's another little bit that came, from, that came from something that happened when I was teaching in Coventry, okay? I was, I'm not really Miss Quinn, the teacher in the book, but when I was um, an art teacher, in, I, I had an art room with a big stock cupboard, okay? And one day, Four girls came running into the classroom before registration in the morning and they were going, Miss, Miss, there's a dying pig on the field. Okay. <laughs> this was in the middle of Coventry and it wasn't really going to be likely, but I thought, okay, let's go. And she, Honestly, Miss, there's a dying pig on the field. So out we went to the school field um, and far away in the distance, beyond the athletics bit and so on, um, there was a small 
sort of pale, beigey looking shape. So we went down and it wasn't a dying pig. It was a Yorkshire Terrier that seemed to be so exhausted it was lying there on its side and we picked it up, oh, carried it back to the classroom and put it in a cardboard box in the stock cupboard and I sent the girls over to, with a note to the shops to buy, to buy some milk and some cat food for it. So we can, I don't know why cat food, but anyway, we, we were feeding it cat food for some odd reason. Um, and it stayed in the stock cupboard all day, even though obviously some of, the, some of the classes I was teaching were a bit bemused by strange scuffling noises from inside the cupboard, and it had a miraculous recovery, actually. Um, and we got home, and on, uh, we kept it for the weekend. We, we contacted people like the RSPCA and you know, the animal shelters and so on. Nobody knew anything about it. We put lots of signs up about missing Yorkshire Terrier had been found and all that. Nothing happened. On the Sunday, we had to go out for an hour, so um, we, le we left the Yorkshire Terrier with the girl next door and she said, I'll drop it back at four o'clock. Well, we got back at 10 past four and the Yorkshire Terrier had eaten the whole um, waste paper basket in the house and, and chewed it right down to the bone. It was sat there all covered in bits of straw. Um, but luckily on the Monday, it was a very nightmarish dog. Luckily on the Monday, it got claimed, so it went out of our lives. But um, I didn't want to use the Yorkshire Terrier, but I thought, okay, it could be three kittens, and, and one of those kittens becomes very, very important to Hannah in the story, and it's quite an unusual, you know, characterful kitten. So that's the story. That was a good question. <laughs> Another question down at the front. Which book did you most enjoy writing? Okay, it would probably be Dizzy for the reasons that I've mentioned before, but... Um, I think just because it was so much fun to write about the festival thing, but the one that I like best now is Driftwood, I think, and it's, it's probably because I like all the characters in it so much, and so I really hope that you lot will like it just as much. Okay, any other? We've got a question there, and then a couple over on the other side. Do you base any characters on um, people that you know? Right, well, I've explained, not really, I wouldn't base a character on somebody that I know, but little tiny details of, of um, people might, might, you know, a character is a whole composite. You build up lots of different characteristics. So maybe, for example, little details. Um, there, was, there was little bits and pieces of my kids in, in some of the characters in there. For example, my son went through a phase of saying shish kebab, um, a lot last year when I was writing this and so that became one of the characters kind of little catchphrase in Driftwood um, but I think really if you're a writer you, you um, get ideas and, and thoughts from all around you kind of, you're a bit of a magpie and pick little bits and pieces from here and there so you don't, you can't really take a whole person and sort of say alright oh, that's that person because that would, that would be very very cheeky, it wouldn't, wouldn't work either, it has to be something from your imagination really. Right, we've got a couple of questions on this side Please. Have you ever had any of the experiences that the characters in your book have had? Not really. Um, no, I mean, my mum didn't leave me when I was four and I never got sort of kidnapped and taken to festivals and, and no, I didn't have that kind, of, that kind of background that's in Indigo Blue either, but where they're not kind of real life in that way, they're not autobiographical. I do understand the, the feelings in there. So for, you know, my mum and dad did argue a lot when I was a teenager, and I understand what it feels like if you're a little bit anxious about parents that argue. But you know, the stories are fiction and they're kind of imaginary. But I think I think it is important to try and write about things that you care about, things that matter to you. So I hope that they're they're kind of convincing because because the feelings in them are real. Okay. Another one just just next door. <coughs> Who was your favorite author when you were little? Oh, when I was little I read authors. I don't know if you will know these people. Um I used to read Arthur Ransom, who wrote Swallows and Amazon Stories. I used to read Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote The Little House on the Prairie books and C.S. Lewis, people like that. And then by the time I got to about 12, I kind of couldn't quite find anybody that I really, really liked. Um, and I think that's probably another thing that makes you want to be a writer, because you kind of want to write the sort of things you want to read. So, you know, it's, uh, you, you have a lot more choice. You've got a, a very wide choice these days, so you're really lucky. Okay, I've got some more at the back over there. Um, 
if you could be one of the characters from any of your books for a day, who would it be? It would definitely be Dizzy, I think, just because I would love, I would have loved to be a New Age traveller, but not quite brave enough to do it. So to actually be taken away for a magical sort of adventure like that would be really, really cool and live, live in that kind of atmosphere of festivals and so on. And although, although that's not going to happen, one of the nice things that's happened since, since um, writing the books is um, we decided, well, you know, what, what would you buy? What exciting thing would you buy? And we bought ourselves a really exciting thing, a teepee, just like, just like the, teepees that, um, the teepee that Dizzy wakes up in on her first day at the festival. And it's the best thing in the world. And also, I'm convinced that if I ever get any, any kind of bits of writer's block or the story's ever going slow, then um, the best thing would be if I took my laptop out and worked in the teepee. I'm sure that would solve all my problems. So that's my theory anyway. And one more right at the back. When did you finish writing Driftwood? Right, finished writing Driftwood kind of would be about last November. So it takes just about a year really to um, to get a book from you know from pile of pile of sort of manuscript typed off from the from the computer to to actually looking like a real book. Um, and I've just actually finished a, my fourth book about three weeks ago, three, four weeks ago. And my fourth book's uh, um, called Scarlet, and that will be published next June. So I'm on three weeks' holiday at the moment. <laughs> I think one last, one last question at the back. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Why did you call your book Driftwood Driftwood? Oh, right. That's a good question. You kind of have to read about three quarters of the way through to really understand why I called it Driftwood. It's, bec it's because of one of the characters. Um, but the character of the boy, that, um, Paul Slater, who's the new, the new foster child that Joey's family are going to look after, is quite, is quite an interesting character. Um, and he's had quite a difficult life. and. and Things aren't always easy for him when he, even when he settles into his new school and his, his new life here. And he actually really loves walking along the beach because this, this book is set by the sea. And he, he, he likes walking along the beach and he's invented something that he calls beach magic, where he thinks that he can solve his problems if he does certain things like maybe skim stones across the water or whatever. Um, so there are little, it's, it's kind of to, all to do with the character Paul. But Joey's foster parents, Jed and Eva, also, they, it's slightly to do with them as well because they make wonderful, beautiful, kind of crafty things out of driftwood that they collect from the beach. So there's this kind of a, a lovely cottage that's all made of, you know, chairs made of driftwood and table made of fish boxes and stuff like that, you know. So lots of kind of driftwoody things, but you kind of get the real reason about three quarters of the way through. It's because it's kind of to do with the character Paul. Okay. Kathy, that was a great insight into your books. And Scarlet, that's the next again yeah. one. Yeah. So Driftwood's out, and you're going to get a sneak preview here at the Book Festival because its official date's not till the beginning of September. I'm now going to take Kathy next door to the children's book tent where our books will be. And if you've been too shy to ask any questions in front of anyone else or there wasn't time, I'm sure Kathy will be able to have a very quick chat with you. So I want you all to join me in giving a big thank you to Kathy. very much there is just one thing that I want to say before before I kind of sneak away and that is if you didn't if you didn't get a chance to ask your question or you're not brave kind um, you can email your question to me at my website which is www.kathycassidy.com okay and loads of stuff to do on the website um, you can ask questions you can send in a picture there's the, even a competition, the tail end of a competition running at the moment. Lots and lots of exciting things to do. But also today, I think we have some, some wee flyers, some little um, flyers where you could sign up for free for um, Kathy Cassidy newsletters, which are a lovely thing that Puffin, the publishers, um, have done for me. And there is, um, I know that some of you have probably already seen some of the newsletters, but 
there is a new newsletter for each book, so there is a very a brand new newsletter about to, about to be printed. Um, and if you sign up, Puffin will send you the newsletters for free. Okay, and there's no, no hitches or anything complicated about it. And it tells you all about the books, about the website, and just lots of nice, fun things to do as well. So that's a good, cool thing to do. Okay, thank you for listening and being so good, okay? And hopefully see you all in a minute.